on this episode of The Jason Wright Show. I think the, the details and stories you hear over and over again of just how detailed he is, just how to the minute, to the second he is. And so, you know, I've talked to multiple people where he'll call them at 6.02, right? And 6.02 in the morning. And it's not, it's not calling him at 6. He's not calling him at 6.05. Like, he's just, all right, I have a minute. I'm calling right in this minute. And I think that that's so much of what it's based around, like, People told me during practices just how things are truly down to the second where he's trying to maximize every second, every minute, every hour of his day. You know, guys, I'm very fortunate because I have a very, very understanding wife. For example, I just received... This week, my ninth pair of Zero shoes. I love Zero shoes. You've got to check them out. If you have never experienced the just the superb, almost massage, it's like little angels massaging your feet while you work out when you're wearing Zeros. They are just an absolute game changer. They are as close as you can get to being barefooted, which is better for your arch, better for your foot support, better for your over. It engages more muscles. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's good for your feet. And let me tell you something. The older you get, when you're when you're an old fart like me, you want a good solid foundation, and that starts with having good, healthy feet. And zero shoes helps you get there. You can go and order a pair right now and support the Jason Wright Show by going to jasonwrightnow.com forward slash happy dash feet that's jasonrightnow.com forward slash happy dash feet so that you too can experience happy feet i'm telling you they're a game changer get some zero shoes now find out why ben greenfield peter atia all the muckety mucks of the health and wellness world wear zero shoes and you should too go get you some all right so john talty man welcome to the jason Wright show brother how you doing Doing great. Appreciate you having me on. Well, like I said before we hit record, I'm really excited about this. This audience knows that I'm a little bit of a fanboy when it comes to Nick Saban. Because, I mean, you know, in the immortal words of Ricky Bobby and ex- uh, excuse my crassness, the man does piss excellence. He is just, <laughs> I mean, it, it's it's really become kind of... Uh, I don't know. Nick Saban has just uh, reached kind of Oracle status among leadership and coaches. And, and so to have you on here uh, to, to talk about your, your new book, uh, the leadership secrets of Nick Saban and how he became Alabama's uh, greatest or, uh, became the Alabama's coach became the greatest of all time. Did I get that right? The, the secondary title. Okay. I think you got it pretty close. Yeah. Well, let's get it right. I, I want think it's I, how Alabama's coach became the greatest ever. So we're pretty there, close. There you go. That's I want to make sure we get it right because I want everybody that uh, is interested in understanding better the leadership secrets and tactics of Nick Saban to pick up this book. And I am so excited to dive into this conversation. All right, so let's just get started. Tell me about the genesis of this project. What made you decide to? And, and by the way, it's kind of a ballsy move to take on. Nick Saban. I mean, it, it, as a, as a, as a profile, right? Because everybody's waiting for his book. I mean, let's just be honest. Right. Everybody, everyone wants Nick Saban to write a book, and everyone wants to be able to better understand why Nick Saban has become the legend he is. We've had a lot of great football coaches, but like your, the title of the book says, he has become the greatest of all time. I think that's uh, 
pretty much indisputable at this point. So what made you decide to take on this project? Yeah, you know, I think people are, you know, when his book eventually comes out, I think a lot of people will enjoy it and buy it and things like that. I think for me, part of it is that he's not going to write a book until he retires. And so, you know, that could be five years from now, 10 years from now. And I've seen just based on the reaction that my books had, like, there is a demand for these kind of things. And so you know, I'm trying to meet that demand of you know trying to give people something that they can get and not have to wait a decade for. I, I think that, you know, one of the things that I think I'm able to do or was able to do in this book is that, and you see this, I think, with all kinds of leaders, I think you want the leader's perspective, but sometimes the leaders do things that they don't even necessarily know that they're doing, or, you know, maybe they can't even understand this is why I did what I did. It's just so natural to them. And so sometimes I think it's almost helpful to have, you know, the perspective that I do and trying to talk to a lot of different people and kind of put that all together and into a composite book, which I'm getting lots of different perspectives of things that he did and why they thought that he did it. Uh, to give you a kind of a, a well-rounded perspective. And so, you know, I've been fascinated by Nick Saban for a long time as well. Uh, you know, I get to cover him on a, a daily basis here in Alabama in terms of my day job. And I've just always felt like that the way that he runs things at Alabama and the way that he does things on a daily basis, that there are things within that that are translatable outside of just football. And that's kind of really the genesis of this book, was trying to explore that and see what I think actually could have value for you know, business owners and leaders in different spaces outside of just sports. All right. So let's just dive right into it. What, w- let me ask you something. Let's just start here. I'd probably wait till a little bit later, but I'm, I'm, I actually want to get to this right away. What is something that surprised you good or bad as you started digging into Nick Saban and like his daily habits, his daily protocols? Was there anything that kind of made you go, that's that's crazy because to your point there's so many things that that probably Nick Saban like he probably really never paid attention to what a big deal it is that he has his two little debbies oatmeal cream cakes every day with a cup of coffee before he starts to stay he probably didn't think anything about it. That's just what he liked to do. And then all of a sudden, now it's become a thing, you know. Uh, as a matter of fact, at River in Tuscaloosa, you can actually order as a dessert the most amazing uh, oatmeal cream pie you've ever had that I'm pretty sure was inspired by Nick Saban's habit. But what did, what is something that you kind of, as you started to peel back that onion that is Nick Saban, that you were like, oh, wow, I, that, that's, that's amazing? I wouldn't say that it surprised me, but I think the the details and stories you hear over and over again of just how detailed he is, just how to the minute, to the second he is. And so, you know, I've talked to multiple people where he'll call them at 6.02, right? And 6.02 in the morning. And it's not, it's not calling him at 6. He's not calling him at 6.05. Like, he's just, all right, I have a minute. I'm calling right in this minute. And I think that that's so much of what it's based around, like, people told me during practices, just how things are truly down to the second where he's trying to maximize every second, every minute, every hour of his day. Those stories to me, I think just reinforce what I think I already kind of knew, but it's almost startling in some ways how committed and how organized he is and how good he is at managing his day. You know, he's not falling down rabbit holes on Wikipedia, you know, reading about World War II the way some of the rest of us are. He is locked into what he needs to be locked into pretty much every minute of every day. And just the stamina that I think it takes to do that is pretty inspiring. So that's one of the things that I talk a lot about on this show is how you stay sharp. As a matter of fact, uh, Jim Lair, who is a legendary human performance coach, uh, he, he had, he trained a lot of top tennis players. And one of the things that he talks about a lot is extreme focus and managing energy 
what does Nick Saban do to to maintain that stamina? Does he have a? I mean, obviously, if he's eating little, that's again, that's what shocked me that he's eating little Debbie's, you know, uh, oatmeal cream pies. That's not exactly the healthiest thing in the world, but something's working. What does his day generally look like to be able to extract as much from the, as you say, those minutes and seconds that he possibly can? Kind of what is what is the day, and does he does Nick Saban ever have downtime? Not a lot, you know, and I think, again, he's even during periods of time in which you would think it is a downtime, for instance, you know, he eats the same thing for lunch every day, similar to how he eats the same thing for breakfast every day. And, you know, numerous people told me that, like, you know, if you happen to be having lunch with him or something like that, like, he's not just hanging out looking at his phone, like he's still trying to work basically through the lunch. So he's doing a lot of that. You know, I think he does allow himself some vacation time. He likes to golf. He's got some things that I think allow him to recharge. He likes to spend time on the lake, but he's maximizing his effort throughout the day. And so I think there's, he has a structure, which I think in some ways maybe makes it easier for him. You know, he's going to eat the same thing for breakfast every day. He's going to eat the same thing for lunch every day, has similar clothes that he's wearing every day. You know, he's got this kind of structure in place that, you know, maybe allows him to be 1% more efficient. in. And then I think the way he stacks his day, you know, meeting with his staff early on, you know, trying to maximize those early hours to really set the day ahead of what needs to be accomplished, I think allows him to do that. Uh, you know, he's going to work in recruiting. He knows that that's critical to his operation. He wants to get that done. You know, with a football team, you have practice, and that's a couple hours later in the afternoon that, you know, he's going to be running around and getting his exercise and things like that uh, in to keep himself, I think, energized. And he's usually working, you know, pretty late into the evening. It's it's pretty incredible for someone, you know, to be now 71 years old to be still putting in that effort day in and day out. And so I think one of the key things with it as well um, and it's something that, you know, multiple people who worked for him and played for him told me was that it's, he of course is, you know, has a lot of energy and he has incredible focus and incredible dedication, incredible organization, all these different things, but he's also found the thing that he loves, right? He found the thing that he is very good at. And so, you know, I think we've all, at least some of us have probably been in jobs where we're not energized, we're not inspired. And sometimes it feels draining. Whereas I think, when he's out on a practice field, that's energizing to him. That's not him thinking, oh, man, I have to do a two-hour practice. This sucks. It's I'm fired up to try to help these guys be better every day. And I think that allows him to kind of reduce the battery, knowing that he's getting to do things that he truly loves doing. Yeah, that's one of the things that <clears throat> I always thought about him. And I just Have you ever read the book Power Broker, by chance, about Robert Moses and the, the, yeah. the, the rise and fall of New York? Okay. So – now, exactly, not exactly a. Uh, he's kind of a rough character <clears throat> from from a personality standpoint and, uh, and everything. But one of the things I got from the book, The Power Broker, was that Robert Moses, much like Nick Saban, was so in love with what he did, was so in love with his vocation, and he and the output that that guy was able to accomplish in literally building New York as we see it today. I mean, the Long Island Expressway, most of the bridges we see, uh, the Battery Tunnel, all these major infrastructure. Uh, things that we have to see. Robert Moses, his fingerprints were all over this, sometimes maintaining as many as five executive jobs at one time. And I, I get the sense that Nick Saban, it's almost, and we and we hear this, I was just listening to Andrew Huberman the other day, like Robert Moses, the same thing with Nick Saban. It's kind of this use it or lose it idea of your brain, your, your physical being. 
if you use it, you can go, you can keep going for a long period of time. Most people, they get this mindset that you you overwork and you can't overwork physically, obviously, and mentally as well. But there is a magic and it seems like a, um, an energizing effect to not just finding something, I guess the, the pull, if you will, is finding the thing you love, but your output can just be so prolific if you just keep going. And I guess that's kind of what Saban has seemed to be able to do is that it's, he never slows down. So therefore it's, if it's use it or lose it, he's going to keep using it as long as he can. Um, do you think, and, and how up close did you, were you able to get, cause I know that, Nick Saban is very close to the vest. I mean, he doesn't, and he does. I mean, guys in your business, you know, he's not a big fan of journalists. You know, he's he's notably kind of hurt with certain uh, sports figures. So, how close were you able to get to him through this project? And and let me ask you this: not only you, I got to believe that your life had to have been changed diving into this. It, it, I know that just watching Nick Nick Saban coach a game on Saturday makes me want to be a better version of myself. I just, it does. I, when I watch Tom Brady play football, it makes me go, I want to be better. So did it have an impact on you? And then what does it do to those coaches around him and the players when they see the, the CEO of the University of Alabama's football team, the, the general doing these things? How does that have a ripple effect on all those that surround Nick Saban? Yeah, I mean, it did have an impact. And, you know, I found myself in some ways while I was writing this book and finishing it up, you know, going back to certain things. You know, there's a chapter in this book about, you know, how Nick Saban handles loss and adversity, right? And then, you know, some things happen in your life and you're thinking, oh, man, like you're kind of down or whatever. And I went back and looked at the book. I, how, how did he – yeah, I think, you know, as I – you know, there are times – writing this book and then editing the book and then looking back on the book where you find yourself, you know, becoming more of a convert, you know, someone who you you believe it even more. There are times where I feel like, you know, I went back to this one chapter where, you know, it's about how Nick Saban handles loss and adversity. And there are things that happened in my life that I went back to. Let me think about how Nick Saban would have handled this situation, would have handled a loss, like whatever I was going through. And it was helpful. And there are different things that I've incorporated in my life uh, while, you know, working on this book, whether it's the 24 hour rule, which is how he handles, you know, wins and losses, you know, some of the different sayings and quotes that he has, you know, there's just a lot, I think that he does that I think it's easy to incorporate in your life and easy to use on an everyday basis. I think that one of the things that I learned writing this book is that a lot of coaches and players and others have carried that with them. You know, there's this uh, player who told me this story where, you know, so much at Alabama, you're fighting through adversity, whether it's, you know, in games, whether it's in practice, whether it's trying to play more. And he said that, like, going through that, it's not an easy experience. It's not easy to play at Alabama. Nick Saban has an extremely high standard. He's demanding a lot every day. And it wasn't always fun going through that. But when you get into the real world and where life is not easy, it makes, he said, it made it so much easier to be successful knowing that he had that experience and was able to kind of, you know, get through it at Alabama and allowed him to, you know, have a better success uh, doing that in the real world. So I think there's a lot of things within that that people have taken with them. And, you know, being able to push yourself to the max and get the most out of yourself uh, is, and a lot of guys have benefited from that. So one of the things I want to talk about is the 24-hour rule. So do not let me forget, because I tend to go off on tangents sometimes, John. So you just bring me back in, brother, if, you, if we have to. But <laughs> so you're talking about the difficulty of playing at Alabama. I was, first of all, a couple of points. 
I think it's amazing. It shows how tough it is. And you, you mentioned the standard that uh, Coach Saban has and how hard it must be playing for him. And I think that was exhibited by, I think we were all shocked whenever we saw him smiling on the sideline during the Ole Miss game, right? I mean, it's, it's weird that that was a notable occurrence to see Nick Saban smile on the sideline whenever he's talking to Bryce Young. Almost you never see that. And then, but the way that he described going through the season after that, it was maybe it was the next game or whatever, whenever he started talking about how, which you just made mention of, the difficulty of playing at Alabama where it would be really easy to lose joy whenever you're expected to win every single game. And Saban, you know, he, he and it, it was surprising to me to hear that he has such a focus on, hey, guys, enjoy what you're doing because if this becomes drudgery, then that means you're just going to play to not lose as opposed to play to win. And and I think that's one of the things about he, him as a leader that, that I know that I've taken for granted is that it's not just about winning a national championship. It's about getting into the psyche of these players that come in, that they are they are auditioning for the NFL. If you if you go to the University of Alabama, you are auditioning for the NFL. You're not supposed to lose a game. You are expected to win the national championship. And by the way, there's a lot of people that despise that fact that you are that player. There's so many things that these 18, 19, and 20-year-olds are dealing with that just most people, people that have been on this earth like me, I'm nearly 50 years old and we've, I've never experienced that kind of pressure. Um, so I think that's a good point that, that you bring up as far as Nick Saban being able to coach through that aspect of it, but talk a little bit about some of those tactics. How does, what is the 24 hour rule? What does that look like? How does he handle, what is a, what is the day after a loss look like for Nick Saban personally? And then how does he rally these guys, especially after, They've lost their second game in a season, and they realize we're not going to be national champions this year. What does that look like? Yeah, the twenty-four hour rule I think is pretty basic uh, in theory. It's just that you know whether it's a win or a loss, you get twenty-four hours to kind of handle it, and then then you've got to start moving on. And I think you know why I think that's successful is that you know in any really in any walk of life, right? You know, you have a big win, you sign a big deal, you win a big contract, whatever it is. It could be easy to allow that to kind of color you to ride high off of that for a while. And it's not that you shouldn't celebrate, but I think that there his belief, and we see it in sports a lot, but it happens in business too, is that it's kind of like a winner's hangover, right? Where if you're celebrating that moment for weeks, it's probably going to make it even harder for you to celebrate something like that again, because you're still celebrating the last one, right? So he's trying to make sure that guys can turn around fast and not, uh, focus too much on the success and on the flip side, you know, the loss. I mean, I think 24 hour rule to be clear is not meant to handle, you know, major deaths in the family and things like that. You know, you can of course have more than a day to deal with that, but and say a minor loss, you know, it's about trying to turn that page because if you're lamenting and you're thinking about it over and over again, again, it's probably going to prevent you from being able to bounce back at a level that you need to. So in a sport like football, where there's wins and losses, uh, very easy to see, you know, it's helpful, I think, to have a, a structure like that in place to get guys to, all right, we won. That's great. Celebrate today. And then tomorrow we got to get back to work. And the flip side, if we lost, like you can wallow for a day. And then like when we get back into the building the next day, we got to get back to work. We got to make sure that we don't have that experience again. I think to your other point, it's of course easier when there's only one loss in college football because with one loss, you still have a chance to to win it all. And I think he's very good at being able to recenter the guys of 
you know, our, all our goals are still available. When you have two losses at a school like Alabama where the national championship is what people expect, it's harder. There's more feelings involved. You know, some of the one of Alabama's best players this year is the guy, Will Anderson. And he talked about recently how he was just basically sobbing after they lost their second game this year because he knew that it meant that their dream of winning a national championship was likely over. That's hard. And I think what he's good at doing, what I think we've seen this year and trying to handle it is finding different ways to motivate them, finding different kind of levels of determining success. And so for guys like Will Anderson and Bryce Young, two players who are expected to be drafted very highly in the NFL draft, it's about finishing strong for your draft stock, finishing strong for your ability to you know, provide for your family moving forward. I think it's about having pride in the product and wanting to finish strongly for everybody on the team. And, you know, for the guys who are coming back to build some positive momentum for you know, their next year, for them to establish their positions that they might play, establish playing time for the future, all those different kind of things. And we saw, you know, Alabama finish very strong this year. I mean, it wasn't the year that anybody wanted, but the fact that Bryce Young and Will Anderson, two guys who could have opted out of playing that Sugar Bowl, both decided to play and Alabama played the way that they did in that game in which they, you know, beat up on Kansas State pretty good. Uh, I think it speaks to Saban's leadership and what, again, is considered a not successful season for Alabama, which is absurd given that, you know, they went 11-2 and two and beat the Big 12 champion. But I think that it, it spoke to him getting those guys playing at their best, even without having that kind of carrot to dangle over them of playing for a national championship. So, okay, Nick Saban, and there's been a lot of legendary coaches, Bear Bryant, you know, in Alabama, DNA, and Gene Stallings. And all, all of them had their own deal. They were all super disciplined. They all were had football smarts. They all were, had a great work ethic. Were you able to identify through this process um, just what, what, the, what the secret sauce was that for some reason makes Nick Saban so different? And, and before... I always do this, and, and you have to forgive me. And the audience, bless their hearts, they, they, they're used to this. I'll ask a question that makes me think of a lot of other things as to why I'm asking the question. You bring up a lot of those points in that Nick Saban has built a program that's not just about winning a national championship, but it's about putting players in the NFL. It's about changing lives. It's about it's about them having generational change for their family. So he has a lot more tools now because of the program that he's built that for for the lives of his players and the motivational levers that he has to pull, it's not just about which bowl game we're going to. It's not just about a national championship, but it's about a life-changing event irregardless of whether we win the national championship or not. And that's based on what he's built. I've read everything I can get my hands on with regard to John Wooden, and John Wooden did a lot of writing, so that was really cool. And um, So you, you kind of understand his methodology. It's very similar to Nick Saban's. Is there something that you're that you if you were to say there's just a defining quality that Nick Saban does this better than even the best that I've ever researched? Could you nail down what that thing is? I think there's a couple things. I'll, I'll give you three uh, things that I would pinpoint. I think one, especially in, if you look at kind of modern college football, I think Nick Saban has been as good if not better than anyone at combating complacency and i think we've seen some of these college football programs they rise and then they fall it's not only is it incredibly difficult to win a national championship in college football i think it's even harder to build a program that sustains at that level for him to win seven national championships in the current environment that we 
uh, are in. And this is no knock on Bear Bryant or things like that. But, you know, it's different now. It's harder. You know, there's less scholarships available to when Bear Bryant and those guys coach. College football playoff, there's extra games added. You know, there's all these different factors um, that are, are now that make it, I think, even more challenging to win at all. And so I think he's extremely good at having his organization competing every single day as if, you know, they've won nothing before. And again, I just, you look at, there are not many uh, coaches in the modern era who have been able to build what he's built. There's been a few that have come through that are obviously very good coaches as well, but I think he's done that better than anybody. I think he realized that, you know, at an early age, but I think has prioritized extremely well, just the importance of recruiting. I would say that's, you know, the most important thing in college football is having the right people. You can say that about a lot of different places too, but he's very good at understanding, you know, what he needs to fill his organization with and making it a priority every single day. And this is a guy who's working on recruiting every single day, even though he has 71 and he's won seven national championships. He is still focusing on recruiting every single day in some capacity. And there's a lot of guys and ties back into complacency that once you reach a certain level, you're like, you know what, this guy can handle that for me. I've got other stuff I can focus on. And he's like, no, I need to be involved in this. And then with that, I think the next piece of it, and I think it, again, they all tie together. He is again, just in terms of people that I've been around the very best at communicating his vision and the roles of everybody in the organization in clear, concise terms in which every single person in that organization knows what they need to do on a daily basis. They know what it takes to be successful, what is considered failure. There's so many places, whether, you know, either organizations I've been around, places I've worked, whatever, you might wake up in the day and think, I don't even know what I need to do today, or I don't know what my boss needs me to do to be successful. Or you get to the end of the year and be like, oh, we didn't have a great year. Why? I thought we had a good year. At Alabama, you know whether you're having a good day or not. You know what you need to do. And I think what that does is it fires people up. People know, I know exactly what I need to do. There's no excuses. There's no BS. Like, this is what I need to do. And either I succeeded or I didn't. And if it, if I didn't succeed, it's on me because I knew what I had to do. And he's very, very good, I think, at, at delivering that. And that comes back to, again, I think the recruiting component. Everybody knows what the top priority in the organization is. And everybody in that organization knows they need to be working every single day as if they've never won anything. And so they all kind of tied together, but I think he's extremely good in those three areas. That is a great insight. And, and which I know this book, it's very, it's, it's deliberately written so that people in the marketplace can take the leadership practices of Nick Saban and apply them in the, in business and in, in entrepreneurship, or whatever the case may be. And you just mentioned something that is exactly what Peter Thiel hammers on with the success of the companies that he's either built like PayPal and one of the, or the first investors at Facebook is that he is a big believer in everyone having and knowing a job. And he said one of the quickest ways to get two people to fight in a company is to give both of them the same job and neither one of them all the responsibility because they'll, they'll naturally compete. And, and, and so that to me, what you just uncovered there is a great nugget of the Alabama program of saying everyone clearly understands their role and whether or not they're meeting the expectations of Saban and what it means to be a champion. You know, I had, I can't tell you, John, how whenever I go into an advisory role, because that's I do a lot of business coaching and advisory, and that's one of the reasons why I'm so excited about you know deploying this book, is how many leaders I will ask, okay, you're going to give a bonus this year. Does your employee know why they're getting the bonus? Or are you just saying, here, you did good? Do you have clearly defined that? Do you set right. aside, do you, do you set aside a time and a space where the employee can ask you, 
boss, supervisor, general manager, am I meeting your expectations, yes or no? And vice versa, the boss can say to the employee, is this organization and, and am I as your supervisor meeting your expectations? Are, are you know So that everybody understands where they are. And I try to train and teach young employees to always be gauging, know first and foremost what is expected of you. And clarify that. Don't guess, and then gauge it. Check for reinforce. Not not get not look for the pat on the back, but just say, "Hey, am I meet, what's the metric? Am I meeting the metric?" And so I think that's that. To me, you just said something there that I want to I want to park on a little bit because a lot of people don't look at the nuts and bolts. They think that somebody like Nick Saban must just be a football genius, but that's organizational genius that carries over from football into business. Is everyone knowing their job, knowing what the metrics for success is, and being able to gauge whether, like you said whether they're having a good or a bad day. I think that is fantastic. And I think I'll just add one thing here. I think one of the other important components of it that I think Nick Saban's very good at is that he's not waiting again until an end of year review to address it. He's not waiting three months down the line. If he sees it happening, he's stepping in and saying right away, that's not how we do things here. Or that was okay, but this is really how we want to coach it. Or this is really how we want to do it. So it's it's an immediate feedback type situation. I think that's so important because I think sometimes we get, you know, we like, you, it's almost like we jot down, ah, that person didn't do great on this. Like, I'll have to address that with them next week or whatever. And then you forget about it. You get stuck with other stuff. And, like, sometimes it, it just kind of goes by the wayside. And that person doesn't even know that they did the wrong thing or that yep. they weren't meeting your standard. And so I think that not only do you have to set the standards, but you have to enforce them. You have to, you know, you have to constantly be communicating them so people understand whether they're doing a good enough job or not doing a good enough job. Because at the end of the day, if it starts happening multiple times, this is something Nick Saban talks about. If we're not coaching it that way and we're not fixing it, then we're allowing it to happen, right? And so if I, you know, I tell you, hey, this is how we do things here, and then you just keep doing it wrong over and over again, well, that's at some point that's on me, you know, because I should be stepping in to fix that problem. And if you can't eventually do it, then I need to find somebody else who can do it. And so there's there has to be some, you know, some daily interaction there and not just having one big meeting at the beginning of the year. Hey, this is what we do here, and then just following it up at the end of the year saying we did well or we did it. There has to be a lot more. In now there. tell me what you learned about, because I mean, we, a lot of this, we've talked about how Nick Saban coaches the players, which is incredibly important, but also he has a knack for developing some of the, the greatest coaches uh, in, in NCAA uh, history as well. I mean, there's, there's, there's a great DNA uh, or a great alumni of Alabama. Thanks to Nick Saban out there in the, in the coaching ranks. How give me some insight as to how he manages all of these coaches that if they wanted to could probably go. I mean, it might be division one, two, a or something like that, but most all of them could be a head coach somewhere, but they're coaching right now and they're being mentored by Nick Saban. How does he manage these big personalities, these fellow football geniuses, these, they got to be disciplined. What does it look like to work for Nick Saban? Well, it's not easy to work for Nick Saban. <laughs> yeah, I start think there. So. Uh, you know, he, uh, he uh, he has very high standards, and he's not afraid to let you know if you're not meeting those standards. And so it is a challenging environment, I think, for anybody to work in. Um, you have to be okay with getting yelled at a little bit. You have to be okay with being called out if you're not getting it done. But I think it appeals to certain people. I think you know we all have different things that we like or don't like in bosses. But I think somebody, the people who truly want to get better, the people who truly want to be pushed, the people who truly want to become the best version of themselves, I think they really like working for him because they know that he's pushing them to the, be the best that they can be. And so it's an incredible learning environment for a lot of coaches. 
I think Nick Saban is a football genius. I think that he, multiple coaches told me that, you know, he's able to see things and do things that they would not have been able to see on their own. And so guys are naturally attracted to working around somebody who is that level of success and is that smart at those different things. But I think it's also, they learn how to run a program. They learn how, like what it takes on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, we've seen guys like Kirby Smart now at Georgia who has built an extremely similar version to what he saw at Alabama. And it is now, you know, the most uh, powerful football program in the country other than, you know, Alabama. And I think that's uh, Kirby will say a lot of what he learned was from, from Nick Saban. Um, But it it does. I do think one of the things that I like about Nick Saban that I think uh, he doesn't sometimes get enough credit for is that it's very clear. He runs the show. Everybody knows that, but it does take a little bit of a humbleness to bring in these big personalities and not be threatened by them. You know, he does bring in these guys who have had success elsewhere and he's not worried about, and again, it helps that he's been successful. He's not worried about them trying to overthrow them, but he's also willing to bring in, like, I want to be challenged. Best idea wins. And so if I bring in a guy who was a head coach, you know, like Steve Sarkeesian at USC in Washington, like, all right, you might have things that I can't see. Best idea wins. Like, tell me where I'm wrong. Tell me where we can do things better. And he trusts in the, the process and the system that he's built that bringing in these big personalities is not going to mess up the entire organization. And he's made hiring mistakes that he would admit to, but for the most part, he's done a very good job of being able to find guys who fit into what they do at Alabama and can help push that organization to be I better. I think it was, I, I listened to him give a speech and, and you probably know exactly. I mean, he said it several times about how, why you never want mediocre people. You, it, it, essentially he gives this whole uh, very clear and logical explanation as to why, no, you only want excellent people because you don't want it for their sake or the sake of the team. You should not allow for anyone to basically be mediocre. Um, so, and I know this wasn't a biography on Nick Saban, but I'm always interested in kind of the DNA, what makes him, is, was there anything from that you were able to uncover from his past? I know being a West Virginia boy, you know, grew up in not exactly, you know, the uh, wealth or privilege or anything like that, a pretty, uh, pretty blue collar working family environment. Uh, but were you able to find anything from his past or or what he does now as far as outside influence? I, I, I know he's had Ryan Holiday speak to the team, so and you, you mentioned it earlier, the 24-hour rule is very stoic in nature with regard to a philosophical outlook on things. Um, that's got Seneca written all over it. Um, do, did you, do you get a sense of where he is training his mind or kind of where he's come up and things that he he's gleaned onto either from back at all the way back at Michigan state and those things where he started to really hone his philosophy of life that is carried over into coaching and leadership and being an executive. Yeah. Well, first off, Ryan holiday is great. I love obstacles the way, and I know Nick Saban uh, likes that book as well. So I'll answer this a couple of different ways. I think one to start, you know, I think the way that he grew up certainly influences who he is. And so you, know, you talk to people uh, who, who knew Nick when he was young. And I think his dad was a hard charging guy. I mean, people say that he was a tougher coach than Nick Saban has ever been, which is pretty incredible yeah. to imagine how tough that guy right. must have been. Right. And so it's just the classic, you know, one person give me an example, like it's, and we, we know now that Nick Saban is obsessed with kind of chasing perfection, right? There's always an ability to get better. And when he was, you know, like a high school, he was a great high school athlete, uh, ended up playing college football. You know, so we all know Nick Saban's not the tallest guy, so he might have been a little limited, but overall, very good athlete. And his dad was the kind of guy who Nick would have, you know, 30 points and four assists 
uh, but four turnovers in a game they won. And after the game, he wasn't saying, oh, great job on those 30 points. He was saying, what happened with those four turnovers? Why did you do that, right? And so I think that creates a certain person who's always looking to get better and is never satisfied with just the success that they've had. So that, I think, is the start of his journey, right? Then I think there's a couple key influences for him. I identify three in the book. One is his coach, Don James, um, in college. Uh, somebody who's organizational genius, somebody who was you know very good at you know building different things that Nick still uses now. Ultimately, won a national championship at Washington. He works for this guy George Perlis, uh, who was part of the you know famous Steel Curtain yeah. defense with the Steelers. He was the head coach in Michigan State. That's where some of the twenty-four hour rule stuff starts. Uh, he had a thing called the Fourth Quarter Program, which is the strength and conditioning program that Nick Saban still uses a version of today at Alabama. I, I think. Perlis taught Nick, I think in some ways, how to interact with people, how to you know make sure that you have certain leaders on your team that you can go to and kind of they can give you a sense of what's happening with the team. They can kind of help disseminate a message for you with the team. It's something that he saw George Perlis do. I think it was about Carl Banks and some of these other guys who went on to have a lot of success. And then the last one is Bill Belichick. You know, he's somebody who's been compared to a lot. They work together in Cleveland. Uh, as we all know, he's gone on to have tremendous success at NFL level. And one of the things that we were talking about earlier is, you know, one of the core tenets that Belichick has with the New England Patriots is this thing called do your job. And it's kind of what we were talking about earlier. Just do the job that you have to do. Don't worry about what everybody else is doing. Don't worry about what I'm doing. You have a job. Do your job every day. And if you do your job every day and everybody else does their job every day, then we're going to be really successful. And so I think he kind of added all those different components uh, to kind of the soup that he was building that is, of course, allowed him to have tremendous success at the college level. But the other key thing, I think, is that Nick Saban is on a never-ending search to get better. And so he does bring in people like Ryan Holiday. He brought in you know, the late Kobe Bryant. He's brought in Michael Jordan. He's brought in Navy SEALs. He's brought in you know, Marines. He's always trying to bring in different people to speak to the team. But it's also he's trying to learn from them. You know, I talked to one of the guys who – uh, gave a speech to, to Nick Saban and the team. And he said Nick Saban was on the front row taking notes the entire time and that he followed up with questions. And it wasn't even necessarily something that he was going to use a lot of, but if he could just pick out one little nugget from that speech that he could use to make himself, you know, that 0.1% better, he was going to do it. And again, it goes back to something that I think I said earlier that Nick Saban, you know, is not somebody that has this massive ego that believes he knows everything. He knows a lot, but there was a humbleness to in, in him that there's always an ability to get better. There's always somebody who might have something figured out a little bit better than he does that he wants to pick their brain and figure out what do you know that I don't know that I can maybe add to kind of my toolbox of things that I do. You know, one of the things you just mentioned that I think is, um, so you talk about him taking notes, if he can find one little nugget. I have come over the last couple of years to watch Nick. A lot of people watch Nick Saban's post-game interviews for the entertainment because, like I said earlier, he's not always very kind to the press. He, he gets pretty aggravated with certain questions. But if you just do a YouTube search of Nick Saban uh, post-game interviews or just interviews in general, man, if you listen hard, those are like seminars. He will just off the cuff, he'll take a throwaway line that for someone like me, who, you know, the, the motto of this show is improve always in all ways. And a lot of that comes from the idea of, which is something I want to talk about next, the process and just kind of that the four disciplines of execution and focusing on the inputs and the outputs will then, then reveal themselves. And 
when you watch these interviews with Nick Saban, I mean, I mean, the dude is just constantly, he will just use a throwaway line that you could use as the title of a book. And you could just, you could write essay after essay off the wisdom that he just seems to impart just because he's just taken these little nuggets and he has caused them to bloom into philosophy that has led to this success. And so in having just said what I mentioned earlier, the process. Okay, so now you've been able to kind of, so you've been up close and you've been able to actually now see the process in a way that most of us haven't. We hear it. It's, it's, it's almost cliche at this point, the process, and it's almost synonymous with Nick Saban. If you, John, had to describe to this audience the process as defined by Nick Saban, how would you do it? What would it sound like? Yeah, and so I'll start by saying that I think that the process kind of by definition is pretty simple. I think actually living your life that way every day is the really challenging part. And so at its most basic, the process is about focusing on what it takes to be successful and not just the results of what you did when you were successful. And so very basic level, you know, we were talking earlier about the expectations around Alabama. You know, they're not there's not a sign in the Alabama football facility saying our number one goal is to win a national championship. Right. It's about working every single day to be a champion and that if you're able to do that day in and day out, the results will take care of themselves. That's essentially what it is. Now, that sounds simple enough, right? But it's actually incredibly challenging to live your life that way, to not only put in the effort that is necessary every single day, but to not get consumed by results. You know, Even at a place like Alabama, that's something that he's going to always have to fight back against because guys know when they go to Alabama, they're going to have a very good chance to win a national championship. And then everybody in that fan base expects them to win a national championship. So it's something that he has to constantly fight back against. And, you know, it's about treating, you know, every day as if it's the most important. And so one of the things that he says that, that I personally love and that I try to use in my own life is that there's no maintaining a status quo, right? You know, you and I are talking today at the end of today, you and I will have either gotten better or we'll have gotten worse. There's no, we didn't just say, ah, oh, you know, it's just John's status quo today, just another day. No, I either did something to make myself better or I didn't and I'm falling behind because there's somebody else out there in the world who does what I do, who was working to get better today and might be one step ahead of me. And so he's good at understanding, I think this applies in a lot of industries, but I'll focus on college football right now, that like college football is an incredibly cutthroat sport. Everybody wants to be successful. And Alabama has natural advantages to be successful. But when you're at the top, you know, you're the hunted. You're not the hunter anymore. And that it's even more important and imperative to be working harder because, you know, to be at the mountaintop is so hard. It's so hard to stay there because there's always going to be somebody who's pushing harder to try to knock you off. And so it's incredibly challenging to live your life that way. But he's been very good at explaining it to people, very good at getting people to buy into this thing that he calls the process. And it's really, I think, a good way of breaking down what can be, whether it's a season, whether it's a life, whether it's a game, whatever it might be, being able to take something that's big and broad and break it down into smaller, more manageable things to be able to give yourself some momentum and be able to, you know, you can see the changes, you can see the impact that you're having rather than just getting stuck on a goal like a national championship or a sales quota, whatever it might be. Very good. All right, so I, I want you to take us now kind of, the book, 
tactically speaking, if I'm an executive and I'm looking for, and I always am looking for a good read and looking for those nuggets like Saban of, of, of things that I can impart. And again, I cannot wait to dive into this book. How does your book lay out? If I, if, if I'm more, if I want to use this as kind of a tactical handbook of not just understanding, because I'm curious about Nick Saban and how he does what he does. What, what is the reader? How does this lay out? And how do you take people through this, the process of, of this book and better understanding how to glean some of that wisdom that Nick Saban has and then execute on it in your organization, your family, your life? How does that roll? Yeah, so I wrote this book very intentionally, and it, it's built. Each chapter is built around a theme, and so it's not it's not a biography. It's not all chronological. It's built around different themes, and it's purposely written that way so that you know if you want to flip to all right, how does Nick Saban combat against complacency? Right, you're going to flip to that chapter, and it's going to be all these different examples and insights and and things that explain you know how Nick Saban has been able to handle success, how he's been able to build off of it how he's dealt with you know slips and things like that. So every chapter is a different theme. There is a chapter called the process, which will go into a lot of detail about the process and you know some of the human psychology around it, the different people he's brought in, whether it's uh, mental conditioning experts or psychologists and how they've built this different thing. So that's the way that I built it. I think it's very easy. It's I purposely wrote it to be easy to read. It's very easily digestible. Um, each chapter, again, it's kind of its own different thing. They all kind of build off of each other, in my opinion. But you could kind of flip to any chapter you want if you're feeling a certain kind of way. How does Nick Saban, you know, recruit the right people? How does Nick Saban, uh, you know, uh, build a organization around this, the, the right people? How does uh, Nick Saban pick the right jobs? You know, how he's been able to navigate his own career. All those different things are built into different chapters that you know, are going to have anecdotes and stories about how Nick Saban's done things. There's, I know even the most hardcore Alabama football fans, there are going to be things in there they've never read before, but it's also written, I think, in a broad enough way that there should be things that are, again, translatable to you outside of just football that, okay, I understand how this would work in my organization or in my career or whatever it is that I Very do. cool. Now, I know we kind of touched on it a little bit earlier, but like you personally having gone through this and now and lived this book and getting through it, um, are there any things that you now do as part of your personal process uh, in how you structure your day, how you address colleagues and 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 different uh, stakeholders? Is there something now that was this a life changing experience? Better understanding Nick Saban as a result of this book? Oh, for sure. I mean, I think that I again, I think I said I've almost become a convert mm-hmm. a little bit, and that like I kind of get because I think as a media member, you know, like it is sometimes the relationship right. between us and Nick Saban is interesting. But there's also there's that natural skeptic skeptical, you know, or cynicism, whatever it might be, that when you hear people talking about the process over and over again, it almost feels like they're brainwashed, right? And in some ways they are, you know, but when you kind of go through this and when I talk to all these different people who have played for him and worked for him and and competed against him and things like that, you understand why he's been so successful. And so I think there's certainly things whether it comes to what it takes on a daily basis to be successful. Uh, I think how to address people, how to step in and make sure that if something isn't going right, that you address it immediately and you don't just let it fester. I think that's something that I've thought about. And I think one of the other things that I think about is that it's hard to be a leader. You know, it really is. I think that a lot of us naturally want to be liked. Uh, you know, we don't want to be mean to people. And I think one of the things that I've learned is sometimes we think, you know, Nick Saban gets painted as, you know, not the nicest guy. He gets painted as a robot, somebody who's just obsessed with winning. But 
it's actually very difficult to tell somebody that they're not getting it done. It's not an easy process for a lot of people. And so I think it gave me a greater appreciation for really, you know, almost what he has to take on himself by demanding such a high standard for everybody that there's, you know, there's some sacrifice that he is making, that he's not going to be best friends of a lot of the people he works with, you know? And I think that he is building it knowing that in the long run, they will respect him for what he asked them to do because it was the right thing to do. But there is some personal sacrifice I think it takes to be a leader at the highest level. And it definitely gave me greater appreciation for him and what he's doing on a daily basis. It's, it's, that's, that reminds me of Jack Welch. You know, it, I guess it was in his book, uh, Winning or the Goal. I can't remember which one it was. It was one right after he'd retired. And there was one of the executives interviewed said, you know, Jack was one of the greatest friends I ever had. And I knew he would fire me in a heartbeat. And, you know, that that is a tough balance whenever, you know, heavy is the head that wears the crown. And it's really hard. And I know that in businesses I've owned, there's this um, it's tough to to befriend the people that you may one day have to say you're not getting it done, as you say. And uh, and so, yeah, that's that would be a it'd be a very lonely, lonely place, I would think. So. Uh, so all good stuff. Well. John, this has been so fun, dude. I mean, I, I would love to. Uh, maybe the next time I'm in Tuscaloosa, I'll uh, I'll uh, I'll ping you. I don't now with because Ryland still lives there, even yeah. though she's graduated. She she likes Tuscaloosa so much. She's hanging out there for a little while longer. I think she might be headed to Atlanta, but um, I'd love to catch up with you in person and let everybody know where they can find the book, where they can follow you. I have a feeling this is not the last book you're going to write. So I want to I want to follow you throughout your career, man. Where can people get in touch with you? Yeah, I was really kind of you to say that. Definitely uh, Birmingham, Tuscaloosa, wherever we'll have to make it happen. Uh, but yeah, so you can follow me on Twitter at jtalty. Um, you can check out you know, the work that uh, me and my team do at al.com. That's you know, the statewide news organization here in Alabama. And then you know, to buy the book, you can buy it anywhere you buy books. I mean, I think Amazon is the easiest for a lot of people. But you know, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million. Um, if you're in Alabama, there's a couple of great local bookstores. I think there's plenty around the South that are carrying it as well. And if not, I'm sure you can ask your bookstore to, to, to get it in for you and they can, but uh, really anywhere that you feel comfortable buying the book, uh, you can do so. And uh, I think it's, it's been a lot of fun going through this process. I think people have, you know, the feedback I've gotten has been awesome about this book. And so I think uh, your audience is definitely going to enjoy uh, getting a chance to read it and, and learn a little bit about, you know, what makes Nick Saban so good at what he well, does. Well, man, I can't wait to get my hands on it. John, don't be a stranger to the show. The net, what, what, and whenever you write something, ping me dude this audience is yours this platform is yours i want people to to know what you've got going on so thank you brother i really appreciate you being here with us appreciate that well that does it for this episode of the jason wright show thank you so much for listening this has been a texas titan media production fourth wall did the music and as always Thank you so much for listening. Please consider going out to jasonrightnow.com and signing up for the Vitruvian Letter. Also, please go out to iTunes. It takes like 30 seconds to just leave us a five-star rating. It does wonders for the podcast. I would be so grateful. And with that, until we meet again, go crush it and endeavor to improve always in all ways. I'm out. <laughs>